You're listening to Soul Roadmap, episode 30. If you have little ones around, you may want to pop in your earbuds because we do use some adult language. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week, you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. Today, you're in for a treat. My guest today shares his challenges with intense emotion in the classroom. He's a former teacher and how to work through triggering situations. This is a must listen for everyone because we all have moments where we lack the control of emotions that we want to have. One of the topics that we have, and let me tell you, the topics that we cover are far ranging in this episode. We really get into the rabbit hole towards the end and it was fascinating. I'm looking forward to exploring some of the topics that we talked about. But one of the topics that we had a conversation about is affirmations. And we had a bit of a heated discussion until we recognized that we were both on the same page. And that was that sometimes affirmations are useless. Okay, so affirmations can span the range of saying nice things about yourself in the mirror and then actually creating the emotion behind them. And if you've been listening to the podcast lately, and if you're curious about creating more intention in your life, I have created 99 mantras, which mantras is the same thing as affirmations, but the 99 mantras includes a training. It's a free audio training on how to use them, and I also include a free PDF, and that has all 99 mantras that I talk about in the training. So if you want to get your hands on that, be sure to go to my website. You can get them in the show notes at dinacataldo.com forward slash 30. That's dinacataldo.com forward slash 30. Now, Ryan does a good job of introducing himself in the interview, so I'm going to let him tell you about himself. Let's listen in. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing all right. Happy to be doing this. So we had an opportunity to meet at an event recently, and it was with Amy Porterfield and a select few of the dedicated creators. And we are all creating a digital course of some sort. So I was very glad to get to meet you because we got to talk about a lot of different things, especially surrounding thought and feelings and all of those things that I talk about my podcast and I know you talk about in yours. I certainly do quite a bit. Yeah. (laughs) Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. My name is Ryan Francis. I am a life coach. Do you want the life story version of the bio? I'll take a thumbnail life version. All right. The thumbnail life version is mom's therapist. And I think I became a student of people very early in my life because of that. Always been a helper. When asked at three years of age, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a doctor, a teacher, and a veterinarian. So obviously, I wanted to be a healer. And then uh, later, I was got a little older, about nine years old. I was like, I want to be a therapist, and I want to be an entrepreneur. And having no idea that those were effectively the same thing, if you worked for yourself. <laughs> and uh, through life's journey, I decided I didn't want to be a therapist. I actually became an educator for over a decade after taking a stop in tech and retail sales and massage therapy. And one of my teaching jobs, I had uh, really 
dysfunctional situation with some of my coworkers that led to acute depression and was like a twig snapped in me. And through that, I ended up getting some therapy and I found some self-development work or not self-development work, but rather workshop. I ended up in a self-development class and through that experience this idea of what life coaching was because our teacher had something on his business card that said life coach. And that meant nothing to me until one day I was talking to a friend of mine about her job and just sat down with her for about an hour and just put myself in intuitive space and asked lots of questions. And at the end of it, she said, have you thought about being a life coach? I said, yeah, but I didn't have a name for it because effectively I'd been coaching my students and it had several people say, have you thought about being a therapist for kids? And I said, I don't want to, I watched my mom go through all that. I don't want to go through all that. But there was something about life coaching that was really fascinating to me. So um, here I am. And you now have a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about what you talk about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my podcast is called Life Coaching with Ryan. And the majority of my episodes so far have been interviews with people on various topics of interest to self-development. So talking about the mind-body connection in a decidedly non-woo-woo, very practical and biological way. Talked about uh, death and dealing with death and understanding some things about control and identity that come up with those issues. Talking about communication, mindset, self-talk, labels, Basically, it's how we navigate the world and the mindset or the frame that we put on our lives as we experience it. And you and I talked a little bit about this when we were talking in San Diego, because my feeling is, is that there needs to be some sort of base class in our middle school, our high school years that addresses some of these issues about how to deal with emotions, recognizing what an emotion is, how do we handle our feelings, how do we talk about our feelings in a really healthy way. And I know we're going to talk about some things, including how to deal with some difficult feelings that come up today. But I mean, I know how you feel about this, but maybe you just want to share a little bit about your experience in the whole educational sphere. Sure. I absolutely 100% agree with you. That was a point of major agreement. Uh, When we were chatting, I brought up that I was teaching in a Montessori environment. And one of the great things about my particular environment where I landed after the dysfunctional environment was uh, that I had the opportunity to teach life skills to middle schoolers. And we had a lot of conversations about how to process your feelings, how to name a feeling versus a thought, because that's another thing we confuse all the time in our culture of thoughts and feelings. So be able to distinguish thoughts from feelings and understand our perspective, understand personal responsibility and what is and is not your personal responsibility. And part of the reason I came to that need, desire to express all that was my own experience as a young teacher thinking I had it all together and I knew what education was supposed to be. And through a series of experiences, realized I was not being my most efficient self when it came to classroom management. And so I started saying recently, classroom management is self-management. And that's something I don't think is taught to teachers. And I think that should be taught to teachers. That should be taught to students. That should be taught to everyone. That really the crux of it, you know, you're in a classroom with 30 plus kids all doing different things, especially in a monastery environment, they may be doing 30 plus different things. Management looks very different. And if you're trying to be in control of the room, you realize you're pulled in 30 different ways. But if you are in control of yourself, it's actually a lot more you can do. And there's a lot more options that pop up than the limited number of ways that you think you can be in that situation. That's just true for everyone. 
Yeah, it really isn't what you're saying resonates with me as a lawyer, because if you put yourself in a position where you feel as if you can control everything, where you're setting yourself up for failure, you are never going to have control of other people or the situations that present themselves to you. What you do have an impact on is your own thoughts and how your thoughts are impacting your feelings about what's going on. So that's part of what we're going to talk about today is how we can start managing when these really big emotions start coming up. And instead of reacting to them, instead create that response, like that measured intentional response. Yeah, that is my exact vocabulary as well to shift from reacting to responding. I love that. All right. Well, where do you want to start, Ryan? There's so many places to start. (laughs) Well, why don't you tell us one of your experiences, either maybe at school or in your personal life that you feel you can pull some of these thoughts out of? Sure. Well, why don't I tell you the story of how I came to this idea that classroom management is self-management? Because I think it's generalizable to all areas of life. Feel free to interject because it's a three-part story. Oh, I will. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I object. <laughs> you just, you just jump in. I All know right. you know how to do that already. <laughs> so uh, one of my early teaching jobs was at an after-school program. It was private tutoring, but it was not one-on-one tutoring. It was like group lessons. They developed some materials, mostly for children of immigrant parents who wanted them to learn better English and didn't trust that they themselves could teach their kids English. So I was in a classroom that was nine to 12 year olds, teaching them about grammar and writing. And when they would get squirrely, which this particular class had a lot of energy, and I would try to gain control of the classroom by clapping twice really loudly and kind of shocked them. And they're like, oh, crap. And it brought them back to attention. And it worked. And it worked every time. And I was like, okay, well, I have my tool. What I wasn't thinking about was that every time I clapped, I was angry. Oh. And I hadn't put that together. It wasn't just a simple technique of clapping. It was, I'm angry because they're not doing the right thing. And so I need to do something to get their attention. And this works to get their attention. And then I redirect them and we get back to what we need to do. Well, as you can imagine, like Pavlov's dogs, there's this one day when this girl who didn't produce a lot of work came up with this paragraph she'd written while other kids were working on their own paragraphs. and. She handed it to me and I read it. It was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. And in spite of myself, I clapped once really loudly, just like, ha! And I clapped and the entire room jumped. Oh. And I went, am I free to swear on your podcast? Sure. I'll put a warning on. (laughs) I said in my head, oh shit, I can never do that again. Because while I wanted the control in the classroom, I also wanted everyone to have a positive experience in my classroom. I know we can't have a positive experience all the time, but I knew that inadvertently I was ruling by fear and by what someone called negative emotion in my anger. That was ruling by anger and fear. And that is not what I wanted in my classroom. So that was kind of lesson number one in adjusting my attitude about how I was in the classroom. So now fast forward to part two, and that was in a substitute teaching environment where the school, it was previously been a uh, one through three, a first through third grade campus, but there had been a population explosion and they decided that the way to solve that, which I still don't understand, was to take the fourth through sixth graders and put portables at this first through third grade and dump fourth through sixth graders. And then on the fourth through sixth grade campus, put portables and dump first through third graders. So essentially this campus environment 
had been drastically altered overnight and the culture of the whole school had been changed because it had been established as this one through three. And I stepped on campus and just stepping on campus, I was like, oh, this is going to be a weird day. I hadn't even realized that these portables had been put in and didn't understand my sub assignment that said fourth grade. I thought that was very strange in a first through third school. Well, let's just say they had lots of challenges and a lot of behavioral challenges in the older grades. And I don't know if my particular class that I was assigned to that day was even worse than the rest. I just know that it was bad enough that the first thing the principal did that day was walk in and give the class a lecture about behaving and doing what I say, which was not a good way to start the day. So I'm going to fast forward this story. I'll tell you there were lots of challenges that morning, a fair number of kids being sent out of the classroom, which I did not like because I also had a belief that the kids should stay with me and I should be able to redirect their behavior. But that was not the policy of the school at that time. And I had this one boy who was of Mexican descent. And you all can't see how pale I am. But uh, this kid was acting out and I decided to redirect him gently. And then he continued to act out and I redirected him again. And I was trying something new, not just sending these kids out of the classroom. Also, his behavior wasn't nearly as bad as the other kid I'd sent out earlier. And I redirect him a third time. And he gets this scowl on his face and he turns around and says, quote, under his breath, unquote, really loudly, as one can under their breath, because he definitely wanted me to hear. And he said, racist. Oh. And I just felt something inside me snap. And I nearly, you know, took the kid's head off. And then the earlier lesson of don't be angry in the classroom kicked in. I was like, okay, I have told myself that there is a should here. I should never express anger in the classroom to redirect behavior. So I had this should in my head. And I also realized that letting the kid go and not addressing it at all because of any kids that might have heard it or just the nature of that type of disrespect was not going to be valuable. And so because I've done a lot of self-work up to that point between meditation retreats and all sorts of other stuff, I knew that I had the ability to just quiet the noise in my head and let an answer come to me and how I was going to resolve it. So instead of trying to rack my brain, trying to solve the problem, closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and just thought to myself, the next words out of my mouth are the right words for me to say. And I opened my mouth. (laughs) And what came out was, you don't know me. You don't know where I'm from. You don't know my family. And this kid shrank up and quickly moved to the other side of the classroom. And I thought, okay, this all happened in an instant. And so part of me is now questioning, was this the right thing to say? And I give the kid five minutes. Well, it's probably more like 20 for the kids to do the work they're doing. I walk to the edge of the classroom, the front door of the classroom, and I call them over to me to talk to me because I want to resolve it because I don't like leaving things unresolved. And in that moment, he refused to come see me. And I thought, okay, it's his choice. He's sort of upset. I understand. I feel bad. There's nothing I can do about it, but I got to let it go and I got to get back to the day. So I get back to the day. Maybe five minutes later, he is my best friend. How What? He is my absolute best friend. He is redirecting other kids' behavior. He's asking me, Mr. Francis, do you need any help with anything? Absolute best friend. What had come out of my mouth in that moment was exactly what he needed to hear. And I went, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) I have been locking myself down into these shoulds where really what I need is guidelines. Instead of rules, I need guidelines. I have priorities of values. And if I recognize my priorities of values, I'm going to be the best damn teacher I can possibly be. Because now I'm free to make choices that the moment demands of me. And I can make them as consciously as possible 
So I'm not being run by my emotion because I wasn't run by my anger when I said that to that kid, but it was valuable for that kid to see my anger. And so instead of limiting my experience and limiting my tools, I learned that, okay, there is a way to be present here. And through a series of other events, um, when I got my first full-time teaching job, I learned all these different lessons about how to be with different ages of kids. And that was analogous actually to different personalities of people I learned. And sometimes the best redirection comes from someone else. Sometimes you need to be preternaturally calm and collected. It's kind of like humans can be like cats, where if you go to pet the cat, they run away. So you just have to sit there and let the cat get curious and come to you. And all sorts of other little tidbits like that were just... I developed a sense of mastery of myself in the moment and letting this analysis happen very quickly and developing a trust in my gut to just kind of do what I needed to do and always being prepared to clean up any potential mess that happened. So I entered each situation with a kid just knowing this might require a conversation later and that's okay. And so I got really good at having the conversation later. I really want to focus on this because this topic is so important, especially in today's climate, especially in a day and age where we are ruled by our feelings on social media and react, 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 and don't take a moment to get in touch with ourselves. I mean, most of us aren't even close to being in touch with ourselves anyway, because we're on autopilot all the time, right? So this is where it becomes really important. I mean, if you're listening to a podcast called Soul Roadmap, you're probably pretty open to this to begin with. But knowing that there is something inside, and I think, Ryan, you're describing this in words like guidelines, And being really good with those guidelines and understanding that and then taking that moment to yourself before you make a statement and knowing that you can make a statement that is going to be helpful to the situation. And there's so many times I've seen statements being made that are not helpful (laughs) whatsoever. That's a really nice way of saying it because they're not thoughtful. And it's painful for people to hear, read, see, be confronted with. But knowing in that moment, you have a choice. And that choice, I'm sure we will talk more about this, is something that we can stop and take a moment and respond and that it's necessary sometimes to respond, just like you were describing in your story. Well, yeah, because part of it is deciding where you're responding from. What place in your self What place in your emotional state, what place in your mental state are you responding from? And that makes a significant difference. So something you and I were chatting about the other day was when we are in these intense experiences, we tend to think of them as happening to us, not that we're participating in them. It's a term called locus of control. Where is your locus of control? Where is the location of the control? Is the control outside of yourself? So this is happening to you. Or is the control inside of yourself? I'm owning that I am participating in this moment. And so often we put the locus of control outside of ourselves and we think we have to like take control of the situation as opposed to we're in control of ourselves in the situation. And that leads to one of two things, either a sense of victimhood or of self-importance. And really self-importance is victimhood. It just looks a little bit different, but it's coming from the same place. Like when you're on the road and someone cuts you off, part of your brain is saying, how could you do that to me? Right. 
So you now are in this mentality that something is happening to you, which to be frank, it is. But then you're reacting angrily because that anger is a self-defense mechanism because anger is an emotion of action. There's nothing wrong with anger in itself. It's just how we choose to be in our anger and how we choose to act from or through that anger that matters to the situation. Probably not the best way to express your anger in that moment if you have a value of safety and security and or preservation of human life. Then maybe you don't want to road rage and go screaming down the road and you know rear end the person or cut them off or do something else. Now you may choose to do that. Okay. But if you have a value of peacefully resolving situations, also that's probably not going to be the best way to handle that anger. It may be that that anger is not useful right then and you need to make a different choice, whether it's controlling your anger, releasing your anger, all sorts of techniques and ways to do that. Sometimes it's just recognizing, oh my God, I'm being self-important right now. Or, oh my God, that was scary and that's why I'm angry. Or, oh my God, whatever else. And just acknowledging it very often gives us more control of ourselves in that moment. I will tell you the number of times I've just labeled my feeling when I'm in it, in a classroom or any tense situation, conversation with my partner or whatever. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. Okay, now that I know that I can make a different choice. That is so important because that's what creates the distance between what's happening in our brain and in our feelings and recognizing that there's a separation. Like we are not our thoughts. We have control of ourselves and we're really just, we could become the watcher. I know that some people call it the witness. Like you can see what's happening and then you could just kind of pull back and decide, okay, this is the time I have, the moment I have to choose my response versus when we're so identified with our thoughts, so identified with our righteousness, our righteous indignation that they would ever do such a thing to us. And when we're married to that feeling or thought, then we tend to react in ways that are not beneficial to us or the other person. Yeah, absolutely. To be able to talk about that, you know, fight, flight, and freeze, that is a mechanism that is present in us at all times. And because it's there for our survival and the nature of our culture and society is such that that mechanism gets triggered in non-life-threatening situations. And that's just part of our body. That's We're animals. People don't want to talk about the fact that we're animals. They only want to talk in very high-minded ways about thoughts and spirituality that are wonderful, so long as, in my opinion, they're integrated with this realization that divorcing ourselves from our automatic responses means we don't leverage them. (laughs) We don't understand them. We can't at times necessarily compensate for them because we've never practiced working with ourselves as animals. We only talk about equanimity and equanimous practices and how to be less affected in the moment. It's like, well, sometimes I'm affected in the moment. And so let's just accept that I'm affected, why I'm affected and leverage how I'm affected. I'm very about the practical in that regard. So all that is to say that step one, this is natural. Having judgment about feeling this way is not helping me deal with the situation. I feel this way. I am angry. I am sad. I am feeling like a victim. I am whatever else. That stuff is happening. Step one accomplished. No need to judge. Just accepting what's going on. Is that also kind of like labeling what it is you're feeling? Yeah, I would say that's step two. Step one is just I'm feeling how I'm feeling and I'm not going to try to feel any differently right now. That's step one. Step two is labeling the feeling. And it doesn't have to be complex label. It could be whatever. It's just learning some type of language for yourself. Maybe you're furious. Maybe you're livid. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're whatever. Maybe you're sad. 
Maybe you are on the edge of depression. I mean, there's a lot of ways to label things. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you're joyful. Maybe you're blissed out. Maybe you're whatever. Just get some labels for yourself that are useful. And again, there's no judgment in these labels. It's just, okay, here I am. I recognize it. As you said, labeling it then gives us some distance from it. And then now you can make a choice. And choices take practice. So I have a big thing about safe risk that I talk to people about. It's like learning to be creative in your life (laughs) without having to be an artist or anything else. There are opportunities for experimentation. And by taking those opportunities, you are learning new tools, developing tools, improving tools. You're positioning yourself to be as successful as possible in new, different, and even old, stale, repeated situations. Can you kind of uh, describe a few of those just to give us some idea of where we could be practicing these? Sure. So I like to do one to 10 scales for a lot. So let's talk about risk on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is death of yourself or others, basically. And a call a zero, no risk. Like there is really nothing bad that could happen here. So you can imagine everything on that scale from upsetting a loved one, upsetting a stranger, <laughs> getting physically injured, various degrees of injury, causing different levels of permanent damage to relationships etc, etc. So figure out what a three is for you. For most people, a three is upsetting someone and potentially having a slightly difficult conversation. Or, you know, if it's physical risk, it might cause some type of exhaustion or strain that is unusual. Basically, a three tends to be on the edge of someone's discomfort zone. I just want to put some words around this because I think it would be helpful for me. So in a situation that I would look at as a three, that might be a difficult conversation with a coworker. That would be for me. So I would say if I felt that a boundary had been crossed, if I felt like I was starting to feel some anger maybe or frustration start to bubble up, that would be a really good opportunity if you feel like you can trust this coworker to practice it. And you know what I mean? Like you go into their office and for me, I would start with, you know, how are you doing? I value your opinion in XYZ. I have feelings around this other topic that just came up between us. And I want you to know that this is how I feel about that. And that's your opportunity to kind of experiment. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, well, two things. One, we could probably have an hour long conversation about techniques. Oh, yeah. That's why it's an experiment. Right, exactly. My thing is setting people up so they can start using these techniques successfully. The things that they've either developed for themselves, they've learned outside. For example, nonviolent communication is a fantastic framework for resolving conflict because it's all about owning your own shit. It's all about owning your stuff in that moment. So that instead of combining what happened with your feelings about what happened, you separate them and communicate them separately. When you said this, that is a straight up observation as close to verbatim what the person said as possible. I felt this way. I had this reaction. Now, I am owning my reaction. And then there is some need that is underneath your reaction. When that kid called me a racist, what triggered in me was a desire for respect. And my perception was that that was disrespectful. That was my perception. I own that. I own that that was my perception. What I needed in that moment, when I say need, sometimes I mean extreme want, because you don't necessarily literally need respect the way that you need water or food, right? But for the context of this, need is want so strong that you can't 
separated, like an emotional need. I need respect. I have a desire in that moment, a strong desire for respect. So now I can make a request of the person and I can say, hey, in the future, could you please do blank? Could you please not do blank? Could you please do blank instead? It's always valuable to give in instead (laughs) because then you're expressing what you actually want. I think that where a lot of us get caught up is because we're having these emotions and the initial feeling is to react. But then a lot of times we're fearing how the other person will respond to us, whether it's rejection or judgment or whatever combination of that and how that will impact us. And so this is another aspect of us trying to keep ourselves safe and not rock the boat. Yeah, exactly. And this is why like, okay, I just did a little 30 second or one minute, however long was on that particular technique. But that technique is never going to get used if you never position yourself to welcome the discomfort and take the risk. How do you welcome the discomfort? (laughs) Okay. So there's two different ways to make this happen. And one inevitably happens no matter what. And that is one, you can do lots of of self-development work, period. You can meditate, you can do yoga, qigong, tai chi, whatever else. You can lay a foundation. I talk regularly about the three things that I think are the most accessible ways to do that. And one is breath work, which is literally doesn't have to be any kind of complicated meditation. If you want to do a complicated meditation, or if you want to do an extended meditation, awesome, go for it. Or you just focus on your breath for five minutes. That's foundational. Heck, start at one minute. Start at 30 seconds, actually. I have a technique that I call easy breath, which is a 30-second breath activity that acts as a meditation. It's actually what I developed from looking at multiple breath work practices. Do you want to share that with us now? Or is there some link that I can link to in the show notes? There will be a link coming up real soon. Because as you said, we were working on online courses. Right. So this will be soon, but I'll give the 30-second version on the 30-second breath. And that is, we have this tendency to think that we need lots of structure in order to develop certain types of practices. And my belief is that breath is so core to life. It's just part of what we do. And our breath affects... So it's just like, just hold your breath and hold your hand over your heart and feel your heart rate change. And then inhale slowly, feel your heart rate change. Exhale slowly, feel your heart rate change. There's this idea of heart rate variability that our heart, when it's functioning best, is able to speed up and slow down at need. When there's no need for it to be sped up, it slows down. And it naturally speeds up and slows down as we breathe. But that gets hijacked by stress and thoughts and all sorts of other things. So a 30-second meditation, my easy breath, as I call it, is just inhale for as slowly and as long as you can until it starts to feel uncomfortable. Hold your breath for a second. And then exhale as slowly as you can. That's still comfortable until you've exhaled out as much air that you start to feel uncomfortable. And then inhale. And I can feel people doing it right now, which is very cool. Yes, I instantly feel more relaxed when I'm breathing with your instruction. And so this is, again, an opportunity for no judgment. There's no length of time. When people say, oh, you need to practice doing an eight-second inhale and an eight-second exhale, all these sorts of things. I'm like, okay, yes, those are all valuable techniques. And for someone that's dedicated and really wants to work on that, awesome. And for everyone else who literally has 30 seconds to shift their state of mind, just do this for 30 seconds. And I think most people, from my experience, start between two and four seconds for how long they can inhale and how long they exhale. And I've done a fair amount of breath work. And so when my rib cage is relaxed, I might inhale for 20 seconds and I might exhale for 30 plus seconds. So my 30 second meditation is actually about a minute meditation. That's because I do it a lot. 
So there's lots of ways to practice your practice, all sorts of techniques out there for breath and meditation and focus. So just do something like that. And of course, the longer you do it, you know, five minutes is from research is the line. So if if you're able to do it for five minutes, you've just set a great foundation for yourself. And my whole thing is don't judge not being able to do it five minutes. If you have 30 seconds, you're upset in the moment, or you're in the car, or you're dealing with your kid, or you're dealing with a coworker, or you're dealing with whatever else, just take the opportunity to take a breath. So my top three, my trident is breath work, some type of journaling. And I know a lot of people are turned off by journaling. I don't mean, again, anything complicated. You know, it's like a morning page, you can do gratitude writing, you could do, you know, stream of consciousness, there you could do creative writing exercises, it doesn't matter. It's literally just the act of getting your thoughts onto a page. And then the last one is any type of physical activity, any type of movement, it could be walking for five minutes a day. It could be literally, I did a five minute workout that was essentially a series of push ups, sit ups and some stretching. And I did that for five minutes every morning for the period of a couple months and was shocked at how much better my body felt. When I say shocked, I mean, I predicted I would feel better. I just, <laughs> I just was like, I'm going to try this simple tool and I'm going to see how it works. And it worked swimmingly. Because again, the research shows you don't need to do really more than five minutes of activity and it doesn't need to be even intense activity. Path one is just set a foundation. That helps a lot. That's how I was able to have that moment where I just dropped my thoughts away. The fact that I was even able, capable of dropping my thoughts away was because of the sheer volume of self-work I'd done to that moment. I just wanted to comment on a couple things that you were talking about on your trident. So the journaling has been key for me. And that is something that also helps us bring that distance. We've been talking about creating some distance between our thoughts and our feelings and being able to become the witness of them and create that time gap in which we can respond rather than react. Yes. So that is crucial. And I actually did a podcast on this called Journaling for High Achievers. I will link to that in the show notes. And it has a PDF with it so that if you want to get into this practice, there's some real easy steps. It doesn't take that long in the morning if you want to do that. And then the third part, getting into your body, I don't know that many of us recognize just how much of these feelings that we've had over our lifetime are stored up in our body. And even doing things like taking the time to walk around the block when we may not have made the time to do it otherwise releases some of that. Like I just don't think we're taught that. And when you even do these more rigorous practices like yoga, I mean, you feel a release and that's because our body's holding on to so much. Yeah. This goes back to my, hey, we're animals. Yeah. So when you're like, oh, we're not taught that. No, we're not taught that because we're taught that we're not animals. We're taught that we're better than that. We're taught that we're thinking creatures and therefore that's what matters. And I just released my most recent podcast episode is called Your Brain is More Than Your Mind. And we think that our brain is just our thinking bits, like our conscious thinking bits. But we have lots of thinking bits. We have lots of things going on. And there's something I call the psychosomatic loop, to your point, which is our thoughts affect our body. And not in just like some woo-woo mind over matter way, but in a literal way that our choice of thoughts, those thoughts that we do have control over, our choice of thoughts, giving messages to the other parts of our brain about our state of need whether it's a survival need, a connection need, a whatever need. And then there is a soup of hormones and other chemicals that flood our bodies trying to put us in a position to handle that. And so when you're feeling lethargic, you don't want to do anything, which then keeps you in a state of lethargy, 
which then makes you not want to do anything. Or I like to give the example of a day I drank way too much caffeinated tea. (laughs) We like the hardcore stuff, huh? Well, so it's so funny because I don't drink very much caffeine at all. Even the tea that I'm drinking this morning is herbal. It's not technically tea. Thank you. You're a man after my own heart. You know these things. I do. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's very few things that are actually tea, people, but let's not worry about that. The vernacular of our culture is that this is tea. It is an herbal drink. So <laughs> a spiced herbal drink. So when I had this really delicious cinnamon iced tea from Hobie's, if you're from the Bay Area, and it's just like the best thing ever. And I did not realize how quickly I was drinking it. And I'm pretty in tune with what's happening in my body from lots of practice. I grew up dancing, all sorts of things. And all of a sudden I felt anxious, really anxious. And that could mean any number of things because I trust my intuition. If I get a random feeling of anxiety, there's lots of reasons. It could be um, a sound, like literally something's happening with my students next door. It could be um, I was dealing with some email and it triggered some thought and I just haven't discovered the thought yet. So I put myself in this state of like alertness and readiness, like, okay, what's going on? And to stop and go, Ryan, what has happened in the last hour? <laughs> and I went, oh God, I think I just downed that tea. I am pumped full of so much caffeine right now. That's why I feel anxious. So my body, in this case, a chemical that I put in my body altered my state of mind because my body's state told my brain something is wrong. Be alert because the way that caffeine stimulated me mimics anxiety, which then put me in a state of further anxiety, which then impacted my body and kept it feeling anxious. And so I was on this loop. So a lot of this practice is about disrupting the loop. Disrupt the psychosomatic loop. Put yourself in a state where it's like, I'm going to make a different choice than how I feel or than what I'm thinking. Do you feel like we've kind of wrapped up the trident? I do. Yeah. So option one is do lots of that. When I joke about the self-development world and equanimity and stuff, that's essentially what that brings with, again, acknowledging the animal part. Step two is you just have to do it. (laughs) Right? You just, no matter how prepared or unprepared you are, or you think you are, you need to take the risk. You need to practice it. If it's just theoretical, you're not impacting your life. You might be able to bear your suffering better, but you're not actually improving anything. So you need to figure out what that three is for you. And everything between a zero and a three for a period of time, not everything, you may be really exhausted and decide even though it's a two, I just can't handle it today. And that's okay. Also, we don't need to have judgment about that, which by the way, that's its own practice, but essentially just have to take that risk. So even if you've been doing option one for 40 years, if you're not taking advantage of it, I don't know, maybe that's my own judgment. My thing is when I'm talking to someone about what they have going on in their life, most of the time they would like to change their circumstances. And sometimes changing their circumstances means simply changing their thoughts because it's a circumstance that can't change or that they don't see a value in changing, but they do want to feel better about it. You know, like someone else in their life making choices that they can't control. That's something where you may not be able to change that circumstance, but you can change how you feel about it. But you may be able to draw boundaries. You may be able to do all sorts of other things. You may be able to have a conversation. So this option two is about taking these opportunities to practice the risk-taking that I get to practice all the time as an entrepreneur. I need to take risks beyond a three. I need to take some risks that are sixes. Oh, yeah. But because I've been doing the threes, I'm prepared for the six. Well, that's what I think is so great about being an entrepreneur, being in this online world. I honestly think I have... I know, I know. 
I have had more personal growth in the last three years since I've started going through business and trying to figure things out and making connections with people and putting myself online. Like I hate seeing myself online. It was really tough in the beginning for me to do a Facebook Live, to put myself out there, to you know publish things. Oh my gosh, am I good enough? I mean, there's all these feelings that we have that we get to deal with as an entrepreneur online. It's really cool. (laughs) It is cool. I mean, that's actually something that was very fascinating. As I was getting into this, I like to prepare. And so I started listening to podcasts from life coaches about their life coaching business and things of that nature. And one of the people I discovered was Brooke Castillo. Oh, I love her. Yeah. And talking about thoughts and feelings, you know, the way that she breaks down the cognitive behavioral therapy model is... I think very positive and helpful for people if they want to check that out. Look up Brooke Castillo, the model. She says herself, hey, this is just the way things work. I just put it into a simple format. But Yeah, I mean, it's true. And I teach that theory in these podcasts because that's just the way it works. And I combine that with some other things I've learned and experienced myself. But like her model is very much, it helps you distance yourself from that. It's looking at circumstances and our thoughts about those circumstances, which are unchanging, and then seeing what our feelings are surrounding our thoughts, and then understanding that we're acting in accordance with our feelings, which then creates our results. It's a loop. It is. And the only beef I have, as it were, with the model is that one thing that's not directly addressed in the model, though she and her practice addresses it a lot, and that is belief. Yes, I agree. Oh my gosh, that's a shocker. Yes, stunning that we would agree on something like that. But the model and my use of the model is about understanding what is automatic. It is automatic that you have a circumstance, you interpret the circumstance with a series of thoughts that you may not be aware of. Those thoughts lead to a set of feelings. Those feelings lead you to an action. If you're completely unconscious, we're talking here, and then that action leads to a result. Now, as you introduce more and more consciousness to each step of the model, then the model itself starts to change. And I think it becomes effective for those who want hot self-control. Kelly McGonagall talks about that in The Willpower Instinct. I love that book. Ooh, I'll link to that in the show notes. I haven't read that. Please do. I highly recommend it to everyone. Hot self-control is when you leverage your emotion to choose an action. So instead of cool self-control, which is self-discipline, Hot self-control is like anger, shame, or you know, fear of judgment, things like that. And joy can be hot self-control also, but typically joy is not super motivating. Like, I'm going to feel good after I do this. That's actually cool self-control because you are calmly not feeling joy. You are reminding yourself you're going to feel joy. So it's actually cool self-control. Hot self-control is I'm fired up about this right now, so I'm going to do something about it. So the model is great for hot self-control. It's not hot. <laughs> for cool self-control. And then we can talk about beliefs and taking action with and without belief and all sorts of stuff. And we can get super in the weeds here. But I think just to tie this back to the two approaches is whether it's hot self-control or cool self-control in that moment, taking the risk, practicing with those ones, twos, and threes, you're going to develop a tolerance for discomfort to your point about how do you take action in discomfort. Essentially, you build resilience. You develop your tolerance And the more tolerance you have, the more safe risk you can take. Because now when I'm in a five, I am conscious enough, even if I'm not fully conscious, that I can say this is worth the risk or not in that five. Because you have a tolerance for it. So it's not just, oh my God, it's a five, shut down. (laughs) You can say, oh, this is a five. I'm going for it. 
I think I want to link back what you said about cool and hot self-control. You don't have to understand all of this right now. In fact, these podcasts are meant for you to listen to over and over again. I mean, you're not going to pick up every single thing that Ryan's throwing down right now or that I'm throwing down right now. We didn't pick it up listening to it on one podcast. This was us years working through these things. There's a reason we're doing online courses. Right. I mean, <laughs> there is, so one of the things that I subscribe to is the idea of having to really forge an identity. And that goes hand in hand with what you were talking about um, creating guidelines around how you will respond. Well, you're not going to respond with anger if your core driving belief is peaceful resolution. Those things are incompatible with one another. So for me, when we were talking about whether or not we're going to make a decision to go to the gym one night because we're going to feel really good afterwards or whether or not I'm really pumping myself up to go to yoga. I mean, neither of those resonate with me. That doesn't work for me. What works for me is operating from this deep sense of identity, which is, I mean, if I want to just boil it down to one word, it's I'm a badass. But (laughs) (laughs) what I'm really going down for is like, look, if I'm operating as a successful person in my endeavor, which is to level up to the next level of success, whatever that looks like. What do I have to bring to the table? What do I have to operate from in order to reach that next milestone? For me, it's taking care of myself. For me, it's that I'm doing this because that's part of my identity is taking care of myself because I recognize that that is going to take me to the next level. So that's my drive to go to yoga. I'm not driven by how I'm going to feel afterwards or like really like, yeah, let's do this. I cannot do either of those. It's very much I make it a priority because I book my calendar and I say, this is who I am. This is my priority. I'm doing it. And that's what we have to do in my belief in order to reach the milestones we want to make. Two things. One, I hope your listeners can hear how resolute your voice is. (laughs) So Mary Shores in her book, Conscious Communications, I just interviewed her. She's actually my guest for my December episodes of my podcast. She talks about big D decisions, decisions where it's not like all the little small decisions you make every day generally, but you make a core decision and you throw the weight of your emotion behind it. And then that guides all the little D decisions. Mm -hmm. So what you essentially just said is, I made a decision, a big D, you can hear that big D when I say decision, (laughs) and you know, capital D decision, and you have identified as a badass part of your identity. And this is guiding all these other decisions because you're making them in alignment with that big D decision. People hear in alignment and self-development all the time. It sounds so woo-woo, but it really is just literally pointing in the same direction. Your other decisions, your smaller decisions are pointing you in the same direction as your capital D decision. So what's interesting to me about that, (laughs) here's a little like 201, 202, 203 level. (laughs) If you're thinking about upper class work in college, is that that is, in fact, a form of hot. That's fascinating to me. And it is in a meta way. Okay. It's not in a micro way, where in a moment you're leveraging anger. But identity is this incredibly powerful thing, which means that... So now we're going to get 301 for a second here. I love this stuff. Let's notch it up. Okay. This is another hour-long podcast in itself. So I'm just going to like dip my toe in and then run the other way and go, hee, 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 (laughs) hee. Teaser. Teaser, exactly. So... Identity is exceedingly powerful because when you outline, you are consciously or unconsciously outlining your identity 
all the time. And you are making decisions based on that identity all the time. And when you have a conflict where you don't know to go left or right, you don't know to go up or down, you don't know between A or B, nine times out of 10, it's a values conflict. It is a part of your identity where you have not yet sorted out which should be above the other. Yep. So sometimes, like in the example of me in the classroom with the kid who called me a racist, I had a values conflict between running that classroom as an authority with respect and not expressing anger as a tool to modify behavior. I developed an identity. Critical in that moment was that I decided to be flexible with my identity. Essentially, from the meta, again, when I was talking about hot self-control, is when you're taking these actions in alignment, that's very powerful. When you're able to craft an identity like, I am a badass, and that becomes your mantra, for lack of a better word, it guides so much of your action very powerfully. And therefore, I highly recommend that people develop an identity around any big goals that they set. So when people talk about affirmations, they can get really cheesy, but sometimes they can also be really valuable. I am someone who completes what I start. I have a whole thing about affirmations and why I hate them, but this is not the time for that. I love affirmations. Don't even start. I've got 99 affirmations. I saw that. I was I on your site. I think they were cheesy too, but you know what? They can be really powerful if you use them right. Correct. If you want to understand my opinion of affirmations a little bit better, you can check out episode three of my podcast. Jenny Ward is my guest, and we have a conversation about affirmations and mantras and why I think it's valuable to understand how you're using those tools. So as you said, I am not patently against affirmations, but just in the same way that we deny being animals, there's a tendency for people to lie to themselves with affirmations, which just reduces your trust and or feels cheesy and you never get into it. When we talk about hacking your thoughts and hacking your beliefs, there's some nuance to it. And so I imagine that your 99 badass affirmations are in fact badass because you crafted them in a way to make them valuable. I am hesitant to talk to people about affirmations unless I have the time to explain what I think a valuable affirmation is, which I'm guessing you did. Yes. I will be talking about useful affirmations in my course. Long short is there is you scale them and there is a way to scale them so that you believe yourself. That's all I want to say about that. I love it. Okay. So back to identity. There is power in that. And therefore, I highly recommend, again putting your identity behind your goals in ways that is useful to you. That is awesome. Again, like 90% of the time. When it gets sticky is when identity becomes should. Oh, yeah. Because when we sort our values, consciously or unconsciously, we are inadvertently shoulds because it's an algorithm. What is more important than something else? And you sift through it in an instant when you make your decisions. And when you start to feel uncomfortable and you don't know why, it's probably because one of those values is getting pushed on and some should is getting triggered in your brain. Yeah. That you should or should not do something, right? That's that conflict. So we also need to be aware when our identity doesn't serve us because I will tell you, I have met more than one person who identity was, I am a badass awesome. And I watched them accomplish loads and have shitty relationships. The worst relationships. Why? Because there was a layer of interpretation in their brain that being a badass, that not allowing themselves to be emotionally vulnerable in effectively any situation. Now, consciously, they were telling themselves vulnerability was valuable, but that's not where they were behaving from. And so they weren't able to sort out what was happening in their life. They're like, but I'm such a badass. Why can't I X? 
Well, I mean, let's get really clear about the word badass. Like I used it in a very specific sense, which is I have certain goals that I have outlined that I have created. And this is something that, you know, you as a listener, you know, when you're hearing this, it's so important to become clear on your goals. That's where we're working from here is when you have your goals outlined and I have podcasts on goal setting, I'll talk about it more in future podcasts and in my course. But the big component of that is getting super clear on what you want because you will not be able to determine what are your core values that will then form the basis of your identity. And if having a great relationship with someone is part of that, which is certainly part of it for me, that means developing certain capacities and that's a whole other conversation. I just want to be clear for people listening. Like we're not saying, quote unquote, I'm a badass or anybody wants to be, quote unquote, a certain thing. It's there are very specific goals to outline and create in order to form this identity you want to have. Absolutely. And I only use the word badass in this example because it's what we were discussing. And it's just a word. It's just a label. And there's no judgment on using it. I think using the word badass is awesome. No, I'm just telling you the context in which I was... Yeah, no, no, no. I am saying that for the context of your listeners as well. That I heard what you said and I agree with you. And that you've also been doing a lot of work on this. So when you say you're a badass, you include all of those values you've sorted. Because of your work, you are conscious of a lot more than somebody who's just starting. So to someone who might choose the word badass as I have seen, not in you. Other people have actually done that. Okay. Yes, this was not a diagnosis. This is simply when you are at the level that there is a disconnect happening in your life. Because saying I'm a badass might serve you fan-fucking-tastically. It might be the key to making a huge shift in your life. And you conquer like 80% of what doesn't feel right in your life just by identifying as a badass and sorting out what that means to you. There may come a time, so maybe I'm talking to your future self, listener. There may come a time when that choice of identity is the proverbial Zen boat, where in Zen, there's this idea that you get in a boat and you cross the water. And what people tend to do is then take this boat and carry it on their back or over their head, over the land while they're trying to climb a mountain. There are tools, there are identities, there are positions that cease to be valuable. And you just got to put the boat down. And you're so scared that you're going to come across another stream and not have a boat that you keep using this tool, the boat, like somehow it's going to get you up the mountain. And it's just not. It's just not. So it's not about not crafting the identity. It's just recognizing When I was in that classroom in front of that kid and I had developed an identity that as a teacher, I didn't use anger to redirect behavior. In that moment, I had to accept. Now, I did it indirectly. I did it by trusting myself. I did it by clearing my thoughts and allowing my intuition to operate how it needed to operate. And not everyone's going to be in that position. Okay, So my identity changed in an instant because of this choice. I was able to see that there were ways to be flexible with the expression of my emotion with students that was going to help them. The number of fantastic conversations I had as an educator from that point forward, where I could literally tell a kid, hey, I need you to know, that really ticked me off when you did that. And I'm not looking for you to like necessarily apologize or fix it. I just need you to know that because I want us to have a positive interaction. You just 12-year-old, you are going to completely transform that kid's understanding of emotion and their capacity to communicate about their emotion and their capacity to trust you. I would walk into a room and those kids were like, it's Ryan. 
because they knew what my expectations were, which were often higher than the other teachers. But they also knew the type of support they were going to get. They know they could tell me if they didn't like something I did. They knew I would tell them if I didn't like something they did. And it completely transformed how that classroom operated. And that's just true of life. When you're able to ask for what you want and what you need of people, when you're able to be vulnerable and take that risk, when you don't take all those options off the table, oh, I can never tell someone I'm angry because they might not like it. Is that belief serving you? I'm going to guess no, or you wouldn't be having the problem you're having right now. So having the identity that I am someone who doesn't rock the boat is probably not helping you live the life of your dreams to say something super cheesy, or even just the life that you want, or making that slight change that you think is important or valuable to you. So there comes a point where we have to be flexible with our identities. And again, that comes from doing this work we've been talking about for the last hour. It comes from practicing and playing Really, I say play all the time. And my friend Jenny loves to say play too. So again, first three episodes, you just need to find a way to be like, all right, I'm going to make this fun. Sometimes that's a hack. I'm going to make this fun. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to make it fun. I'm going to see how many times I can say the word blank or never say the word blank or whatever else. There's all sorts of ways you can make it fun. And it doesn't even have to be that complicated. It can literally just be, hey, I've never taken the risk to do this before. I'm not going to lose my job over it. I think this could actually benefit my relationship with this coworker to the example you gave. And this is a person I trust, so I'm going to take a risk. It's a three. It's a solid three. I'm a little freaked out, but I also trust it'll be okay. And then you give it a shot. And now you're rewriting your identity as someone who resolves your own problems. How badass is that? That's hella badass. That's hella badass. <laughs> so for a person who's like, I keep pushing people away. I don't understand why I'm such a badass. Why don't they like me? Then they're going to need to expand their identity to I'm a badass in relationships. How do I be a badass in relationships? Oh, I'd be a badass by being vulnerable. Because before their interpretation of the word badass was not being vulnerable and being in control. Well, being a badass in that context might mean being out of control of the situation and only in control of yourself and taking the risk of vulnerability. Oh my gosh, I could have this conversation all day. This is... (laughs) I'm going to have to have you on another time because this is... I mean, this is such a great area and I know we're both really interested in it. So I know that, you know, people listening are getting a ton of benefit from you, you know, talking about your examples and breaking it down the way you're breaking it down. So this has been fun. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I am very much excited to do this again in the future. We'll work that out. We'll put some on the calendar. Yeah. Okay. So tell our listeners where they can get to know you better. Uh, Best place to come hang out is on Instagram, which is uh, educate the number four underscore life. And check out my podcast, Life Coaching with Ryan. It's on all major platforms. I also put it on YouTube. I have some book club episodes I did like Kelly McGonigal, The Willpower Instinct. I summarized the book every couple chapters. I did a summary. Um, You can check it out there. All that's also on my website, lifecoachingwithryan.com. And it has links to my podcast, my book club, some great blog posts that I wrote when I was just starting out this journey that people might find interesting because I do talk about like ego and meditation and also just like random daily struggles with identity and even getting myself started. That very first blog post is one that I'm most proud of and I think it's the shortest. And then, you know, online course to come March 2019. Yeah. Okay. So when that comes out, let me know and then I can let my listeners know. Absolutely. That'd be great. I love it. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. As you can hear, Ryan and I could have gone on forever talking about some of these topics. I mean, we really went down the rabbit hole. I'm excited to explore some of these topics in the future on this podcast. Some of them were already planned. So I am excited to get those to you. 
Be sure to listen in next week where I will focus in about some of the things we touched on in this episode. Go to dinacataldo.com forward slash 30 so that you can get your hands on the 99 mantras that we talked about as well as links to the books that Ryan talked about. I will talk to you again soon and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Soul Roadmap. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe, rate, and left an honest review on iTunes. I read every single review, so let me know what you want to hear more or less of, and I'll talk to you next week.